do you feel to sing the songs of redeeming love? What the F, man, from the Book of Mormon? What? All right, we, are we leaving your framing of that question on? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's let's offend just about everyone out that. there. Let's offend everyone. So, do I feel to sing the song of redeeming love? A- yes, I mean, like the the Orthodox member would get po'd at the way in which I frame Jesus. And the way in which I acknowledge the messiness of the historical Jesus, but I have felt like, like I don't care if Jesus is historical. I don't care one bit. Like he may never have risen. I don't know. I hope in it. I have faith in it, but whether it actually happened or not, I don't know. What I do know is I've been changed by his grace. I've been affected by his mercy and I am deeply like from the, from the depths of my soul, I am deeply in love with the Christ of faith. And, and I was watching a movie the other day. I forget what the name of the movie was, but I took my whole family to it. In my family, we're all in the middle of a faith transition right now. And this little girl looks up at, um, at the guy in the movie and says, what do you think about Jesus? And the guy looks down at the little girl and says, I love that guy. Do what he says. And she's such a smart little girl. She follows up with, do you think do, something along the lines of like, do you really think he's God? And the guy looked back down without missing a beat and said, I don't know. And I found that to be gorgeous. Like, like, I don't know. I hope I have faith, but whether, whether he rose from the grave or not, like my life, I'm willing to just like follow the Christ of faith and follow the story we tell about this man of, of Nazareth, this man of Galilee. I'm willing to follow him to my dying breath. That's beautiful, Bill. It's great. Um, you know, I really enjoyed your um, series you did on the historical Jesus. Uh, yeah, are we are we ready to go there? You think as Mormons? Man, I, I wish I wish we I mean, were. It, ch- it changes the entire manual. I mean, it changes everything. I sure wish we were. Um, Man, I know what uh, what was the onus for that episode series that you did? Uh, had you read a book? Had you seen something? Read something? What made you want to do that that series on the historical? on the historical Jesus. So off and on through the last decade, maybe even longer, I've, I've loved the, the conversation going on around the historical Jesus. I read Riza Aslan, um, uh, his book Zealot. I've read, um, several Bart Ehrman books. I've listened to several podcasts where Bart Ehrman and, and some, you know, evangelical apologists go back and forth I, I've done all that. And, and then over the last couple of years, being around again, Thomas Wordland McConkie and, and kind of just diving into kind of that deeper, that deeper mystical side of religion and specifically that mystical side of Jesus. I jumped back into it again and, and listened to some podcast. Uh, I forget what the name of it was. I know it had the word Mediterranean in it. Religions of the Mediterranean, I think it was what it was, what it was called and listened to several of those and just thought, man, this data, the data is so fascinating. And I just get reinvigorated about Jesus and I'm spending time with McConkie and we're talking about the mystical side of religion and specifically I'm beginning to have these, these kinds of thoughts and, and, and musings and, and, and I'm beginning to read and think through like the, the mystical Christ. And I come across uh, a Radio West interview 
with John Shelby Spong, and I didn't know who the guy was at the time. This was long before, you know, we had, we had kind of had a conversation about him. And he got me kind of thinking and, and so I went back to this Mediterranean podcast and I just thought the data is so amazing. The, the data around the historical Jesus is so fascinating. I thought this would make just an incredible interview and so, or not an interview, but an incredible discussion. And so I begin to go back through the podcast and write down every detail that I had, you know, read three, four times before, but just now taking the time to like put it all together. And I broke it out into the various books and, and began doing some extra reading and a bunch of uh, PDF documents online and just tried to put together all the information I could on the historical Jesus and, and just riffed out those six parts. I, I think I went into work one morning at like 4.30 in the morning and, just recorded for like four or five hours straight and, and then, you know, gave each one kind of, uh, its own little title and picture and, and then you had the, the, I think it's a six part episode on the historical Jesus. And I, I'm quite proud of like just how much data that covers and how quickly it does it. Have you ever considered doing something similar with the adversary? with Satan and and where do you stand on that belief right now? Oh, it's a good question because I get emails all the time. When I ask listeners like give me like I'm running out of ideas, give me something to talk about. And the the thing I get the most request for is an episode on Satan and I haven't done it yet and and I think it has to like I I just don't I don't, I have less faith and less hope in an adversary. Like I just don't, again, I'm not saying like there is no Satan and I'm just going to put my foot down and declare that. So I'm saying like, it's not important to me. I don't, I don't seem to like, ah, it's a tough question. I don't seem to be drawn to the idea that when good things are happening, I'm getting blessings from God. And when bad things are happening, it's because the adversary is, working his magic in my life. Like I just don't I don't really buy into this physical being named Satan. I'm not ready to put my foot down and say like he doesn't exist. It just doesn't make sense to me and I just don't focus my life worrying about this bad guy. Yeah. My wife's position on it is that what do we need Satan for when we have ourselves? We beat ourselves up and we're, you know, we're so critical of ourselves. What do we need a, what do we need an adversary for? And, and if there is a real Satan, Chris, like the smartest thing he could do would be just to stop bothering us. Like, like if there's no opposition, then the, the plan goes down the drain and that's exactly what he wants. Like he has to be the lowest IQ being in existence. Yeah, like you're if right. He, if he, <laughs> if he just stepped back and said like, that's it. The plan depends on me, so I'm just going to step out of the picture for a little bit. He has to have read the Book of Mormon, so he must know his role right? that he's, that he's playing. You're right. If all he did was just leave the stage, the whole play ends. <laughs> the whole play ends. And so, I mean, he is so bitter and so angry that he just stays in the play anyway. Like, it's that's yeah. just silly. It's just silly. And so uh, I just – you're right. Like, we beat ourselves – your wife's right. We just beat ourselves up enough – and and I look at my life and I just don't see this other being tempting me. And I, 
I, I just don't, I don't buy into that. Like my gospel doesn't involve an adversary. And again, he may exist. He may not. My spirituality, my existence, my, my working through the plan of salvation just doesn't revolve around some non-physical being who's mad that he got gypped, you know, three million mm-hmm. years ago. <laughs> and maybe I'll cover that episode someday. I, I just don't, I'm just not interested enough in Satan to do an episode on him. Here's a question that, uh, from your listeners that seems to come up quite often. It's what does your wife think of everything? How does she, how does she deal with these different issues? Does she listen to you? Um, does she, you know, Chris, does your wife listen to you? <laughs> does my wife listen to me? Hmm. It depends on if I'm saying something smart, <laughs> which she would say is, you know, happens, but <laughs> I just, you know, it, my wife doesn't listen to the podcast uh, at all. The only two episodes she's listened to, she listened to the Brad Wilcox episodes because she loves Brad Wilcox. And she listened to the uh, episode I did with, I think it's Jeff Olson on his near-death experience because she loves near-death experiences. And she's she's gone with me to firesides. She's gone with me to workshops. She loves Thomas McConkie. She loves Wendy Montgomery, but she doesn't love listening to Bill Real. And so she doesn't listen to the podcast. Um, she, she, her, where she stands, like she's in the same space I'm in. Her space is more emotional. My space is probably more intellectual. And that doesn't mean I'm not emotional. It doesn't mean she's not intellectual. It just means she leans more heavily towards helping people in their hurt, in their trauma, in that hurt and in that trauma. Whereas I'm trying to like intellectually work all this stuff out and reconcile it in some, some, you know, some flow chart kind of way. Uh, she, she just isn't, she's, you know, we, we, we walk the same space. We validate that this is real and this is what's happening, but she's not tuned in to what I'm recording and when it's being released and I begged her to listen. Like I would love her input. I would love her to to listen and and give some constructive feedback and some criticism. But she she finds that this kind of stuff is boring as can be unless Wendy Montgomery and Thomas McConkie are there. <laughs> um, to take it one step further, so many marriages uh, kind of enter a state of tumult when one person one person starts a faith transition. Did you and Amanda start at the same time? How did you guys, would you say your marriage went through a rocky spell and then came out the other end? Or is it, you know, as strong as ever? So I was scared to death that our marriage was going to suffer when I came clean to her about our faith, my faith crisis. And I struggled for a long time on whether I even share that with her or not. And eventually the the burden, the weight of it just became so big that I felt like, like regardless of the risk, I had to, I had to tell her what I was experiencing. And man, God bless her and, and just, just an amazing amount of credit to her as a human being. When I sat her down one night and said, I just got to have a talk with you. And, and I said, look, here's what I'm going through. Here's what it feels like. And here's what I think is happening. And here's what I think inside my head is, is where the conclusion is going right now. 
And man, again, God bless her to her credit. Her response was, do you want to go church hopping? And if you do, let's go with you. Let's go do it. Let's go church hopping. And like, I just didn't expect that response. It was, it was the perfect response though. Cause it, it gave me like, okay, she's not going to leave me over this. So I can take my time and figure this out. And, and so I took, you know, months and months and months and, you know, a year or two to just like wrestle with every piece and part of Mormonism because she let me know that whenever I needed to step away, like she was with me. She's on my side. We're, we're, whatever it is we're doing, we're doing it together. Is that pretty unusual though? As people reach out to you and, uh, share their faith experiences, would you say that it's generally, uh, that their marriages generally are, uh, suffering than, uh, doing well through these things? Um, I, I th- the answer that just kind of feels naturally there is that it's pretty split, that it's somewhere near 50 50, that, that half of the marriages, the spouse, when they hear this, this being shared, they, they recognize kind of naturally that their marriage, that the, that their marriage is, has value regardless of what religious system one member of the relationship finds themselves in or what kind of issues that person is wrestling with. It, it feels like about half the relationships are built on something other than we're both Mormons and this is what our life has to look like. And, and sadly, like sadly, my heart goes out to the other half where the spouse feels like you made me these promises. You've made these covenants with God and with me and darn it, darn it. If you choose not to live up to those. And, and again, I, I want to respect this space. I, I think some of us kind of expect our partners to never change and to always be what they were. And I just think life naturally has us developing and changing. And the, the real strength of a marriage is whether we can roll with the changes that we're seeing in our spouse while they wrestle with rolling with the changes they see in us. And I mean, even as Mormons, it's part of our theology, right? We progress, we develop, we, we become something different, something, hopefully something more. And the question is when those changes begin to occur, can we roll with that? I, I think it's half and half, Chris. Do you think, uh, that women should hold the priesthood? I think women's voices should be valued. And I don't think Mormonism values their voices enough. And I don't think they have enough visibility. And I think the church recognizes that and it's made some subtle changes over the past few years. And I'm simply praying and hoping and deeply open to Mormonism finding a way to give a woman's voice more value, to give it more impact and to give it more visibility. And whatever that looks like, I'm, I'm happy to see what that looks like and be okay with it if it accomplishes those three things, and I hope in those three things. We've got a bunch of questions to roll through. Do you think we could um let's try to be quick. Let's do it. Let's do a let's do a lightning round. Okay. First question would be the church is using the same curriculum 
this year in 2017. It's used since 1999, Church History and Gospel Doctrine Manual. Uh, how do you deal with the fact that so much in that manual is not accurate anymore? How do you, how do you deal with it on a, on a weekly Sunday basis? I want my Sunday school to be different. So I choose to try to be the difference in my Sunday school. And I'll just say simply, like I study the lesson. I look at what's coming up the next week and I try to find those pieces and parts that make the lesson more exciting and, and open us up to seeing things in new ways. Some would say that spiritual abuse is the, is dishonest. And when we dictate false narratives and stories through the church materials that the, and, and that we know that members and teachers are going to receive deep and sacred spiritual witnesses about the things they're going to teach on Sunday, that that is spiritual abuse. Do you see it that way? I think anytime we tell a false story and that false story leads to behaviors and practices that hurt others, then I think it's abuse. But I don't know that it's a known abuse. I don't know that we're doing it like cognitively. I don't, I don't, I don't buy into the idea that the church leaders are all behind closed doors figuring out ways to manipulate us and to keep tithing revenue coming in. Like I see this more as these guys, they're, their desires, their wishes are sincere, but they're humans. And in the midst of human beings getting together and doing a human endeavor, there's going to be unhealthiness. There's going to be trauma that's occurring. And it's our responsibility to be vulnerable to hearing feedback when it happens and making changes. And some of us, our beliefs are so sacred to us that we're not willing to relinquish that, that comfort and we're not willing to get that vulnerable. And I would just simply like, like allow this to be just an honest, an honest arrival at this unhealthiness and that people have various, um, motives for doing that. And those, and those motives aren't necessarily like universal across the church as nefarious, but rather that we just as a culture have got it wrong and we just need to do better. Do you find any joy? When you attend church? Some Sundays. Some, some Sundays it's a blast. Uh, I'm the finance clerk in my ward now. And I, I didn't want to take this calling. I was dreading having to serve in it. And, and you said, oh, man, I, man, that's a good calling. I know you that's said you calling. served in it. And you said I loved it. And, and so last week I, I, you know, first off, everybody's paying tithing online. Thank you to every one of you. God bless you. <laughs> who have set up your tithing on the end, on your online account because we went through five envelopes of tithing, one check to be written, um, and then the counselor and the bishopric picked me up at my house and we had the most awesome 20-minute discussion to the bank and back on the 1832 account of the First Vision. And this was from a guy who, like I felt like, there was maybe this tension between us. Like he he knew that that I took these different stances and and he was uncomfortable by him. And I just had to let go of my assumptions of him because he's got the most beautiful spirit and we had the most beautiful conversation. And he was so open and so asking and so listening that I just can't wait till this next Sunday. I can't wait. I can't wait to do the tithing again as a finance clerk because I can't wait to go to the bank with this good soul and to have a conversation about church's history and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Man, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do you see yourself active but still questioning? Um, where will I be in 10 years? Like, I think you and I talk about this all the time. Like, who knows what happens in 10 years? Who knows where I'm at? Who knows what, what new information I come across or different thing the church does? And does the church, does the church become better? Does the church punch me in the gut? I, I don't know. Like, I know where I'm at right now. Like, I'm happy with Mormonism. And, and does that mean like I think Mormonism is healthy and good and all is well? No. What I'm saying is like the positive at right now, this very moment, the positive outweighs the negative and I'm here. Will I be here tomorrow? Will I be here next, next week? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go this Sunday and, and we're going to see what happens and we're going to see how that goes. Like I'm, I'm content knowing that Mormonism is uncomfortable with me. And I'm uncomfortable with Mormonism, but, but I'm still willing to try and like engage that and see what, what comes of that. What do you think about excommunications? You and I have debated this for years <laughs> at this point, but yeah. this have is you probably the thing we position? debate the most. This is the thing you and I go back and forth with the most. You say, you have this argument like there really shouldn't be any line on this stuff. And I keep saying there should be a line and then we debate where the line is. Um, I'll just say simply, there there should be a line. I, I don't think Dr. Walter Martin should be able to walk into a Mormon church and get <laughs> baptized, right? And <laughs> I don't think Ed Decker should be the next bishop, right? I, I like I grant that like there needs to be a line. I don't, but I don't should th- we should we excommunicate people for beliefs though? Because somebody might believe something different than the next guy. That's what I have a problem with. Yeah. And, and I'm torn here, right? Like, should they be allowed to advocate? Because, because in some ways, like, I've, I've been really close to that line, right? Where should we advocate that the church is wrong and our position is right? And the only right response for the church is to come to our position? Like, is that, I don't know. Like, Chris, I'm happy to like argue this out with you. I, I think there needs to be a line. I don't know exactly where that line is, but I also pray and hope that Mormonism develops a safer space for nuanced belief and for people to have honest, vulnerable conversations, and I have no clue what that looks like. Okay, fair enough. You remember you and I did a episode on excommunications not too long ago. Um, some of those guys should have been excommunicated. So, yeah, there's definitely a line. Albert yeah, yeah but, but sometimes the guys who were excommunicated shouldn't have been. Like yeah. like James Brewster, 11 years old, saying, I talked to Moroni. And, and we just said, get the heck out of here, young man, and take your family with you. And then other excommunications that didn't happen, that, yeah. man, it felt like, ugh, like there was a lot of serious stuff going on there where people were being hurt and abused by a church leader. Yeah, it was good that Albert Carrington finally got excommunicated, but he got a pass there in the beginning on the on the four inch rule. Remember? Right. Yeah. Oh. Some of those um, stories are just crazy. Uh, here's a question by a listener. It says, "I feel frustrated at the church's response or lack thereof to the historical and doctrinal issues. For now, my desire is to stay, but how do I teach my children about the church without making them prematurely jaded?" Oh, I'm, I'm probably not the right guy to ask because I, I'm living in a house right now where my kids are jaded to some extent. And, 
and much of this wasn't because I'm telling them like this is where dad stands and this is what's wrong, but rather a couple of my kids like they also were deeply traumatized by the policy and and by other things happening in their classes, things teachers are saying, ways in which the other kids are responding, things that happened to my daughter in her seminary class. And so I actually took my two girls and took them aside a couple of weeks ago and just sat down with them and just had this really open conversation and said, like, I know right now you guys are struggling with going to church. Like, where do you think your dad is? And, and they said, dad, we, we know you see the, you see problems, but you're still fully believing. And I said, no, that's not exactly it. Like, like I thought I recognize I, I, what I was thinking at the time, I was thinking that it was because of me that my kids were struggling with the church and my kids actually expressed to me that they they saw me as still like fully believing the church church's side of the story that the do, you know the dominant narrative Bushman spoke of and and so kind of a relief that I wasn't like the reason they were struggling but like I've just tried to teach my kids to be critical thinkers I've tried to teach my kids to ask questions I've tried to teach my kids not to follow anything blindly and at the same time at the same time, I've tried to teach my kids that there is value in staying in something where there's attention, that there's value in being in some group or culture where, where you find yourself in disagreement with it at times. I've tried to teach my kids that you can walk away, but some, you lose something. You, you might gain something too, and maybe the gaining is, is bigger and better than what you're losing, but you also lose something. And, and that Mormonism, at least for many of us, is worth wrestling with for a long time before we make that kind of decision. And, and so I just try to teach my kids, like, like, go out in the world and, and be good to people, but ask, ask real questions and don't tolerate somebody being hurt just because a group believes something like question it and push back and protect people on the margins and stand up for those who who are marginalized and if you can do those things then god bless you and if you can do it having a spiritual experience in your spiritual life then god bless you even more that's cool man um how do i teach that old this, lightning, this lightning round's not going so good. Yeah, you got to speed it up, bro. I mean, it's like <laughs> ten o'clock, and my battery's going to die here. I got eight percent left. Okay, let's keep her going. <laughs> How do I teach uh, Old Testament prophets live to be over nine hundred years old when I don't believe it myself? Uh, you don't. Like, why not? Why not raise a hand and say some members of the church, including myself, understand these ages in this story? metaphorically, allegorically, symbolically, figuratively. Like I've raised my hand and said it. It's uncomfortable. It sucks the wind out of the room a little bit. But I, what I wouldn't do is say like, you guys are wrong. Nobody lives to be that old. This is stupid. Like I wouldn't say that. I would say like, I honor your perspective, brethren. Uh, and if you're in a Sunday school class, obviously brothers and sisters, but I did it in priesthood. Uh, I respect your opinion. I respect your perspective, brethren. But for me and maybe for the other person in the room who can't make this work, like I just don't believe this literally and that's okay for me. And I, and I respect where you guys are at, but I just felt like I needed to at least open that space up in case anybody else was thinking that. How about, um, yourself? Do you regret not going on a mission? 
Yeah, I think if I could go back in time, I would still go. And that seems like a crazy thought because you see the craziness that sometimes happens on, I, I would do it. Like I, I wish I had gone and I regret, I regret not having done that. Will you, do you encourage your own children to serve a mission if they're available or want to or have the desire, feel called? Absolutely. Like I've seen your kids on missions and come back and the experiences they've had. And I'm jealous of that. Like if one of my kids wants to go, my oldest, I mean, he's just been adamant for a long time now that he, that's not for him. And, and I respect it and validate that choice as well. But if one of my kids choose to go on a mission and if they go with the same perspective that, you know, the world doesn't need more Mormons, that we just need to go out and serve people and love people, then God bless them. Like let's, let's have my kids go on missions. Like I, I would love for that. And, and by the way, I'm, I can't, I hope I go on a senior mission. I've told my wife, like, I want to do like Whoa. a church history thing. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa, we might have to, okay. Well, you may we, feel we different. We should go at the same time years. and we should request the same mission. Oh, let's see if we could do that. Now, now, now we're talking. And we should do a church history mission, but I, I don't know that they're going to let us do that, Chris. <laughs> Can you imagine like you work, and me? I'd like, love uh, to work in the church archives, something like that. Oh, they would not let us in there. You don't think like, they'd let us finger no, all the stuff? No, I think we got a better chance of being in Joseph's house in Palmyra. But can you imagine you and me telling that story? <laughs> People would walk cool, out of man. there with their eyes bugging out like, what the <laughs> heck just happened? I just don't know if I could follow the rules, the mission rules, you know? Maybe we could yeah. just call ourselves in our own missions and just go back and start giving mm. uh, tours. Who who keeps an eye on the old people making sure they follow the rules? Uh, and I think it's pretty loose for them, but. <laughs> Still, I mean, the name tag and the white shirt. I mean, what are you going to do when you're, you know, you're not too into white shirts? Think you'll let us wear blue shirts on the mission? On the days they're not doing the inspections, <laughs> I think. They... <laughs> uh, right, right now, they're, right now, somebody somewhere is making an asterisk in your file and my file. That we that, don't like uh, to wear white shirts? No, that 45 years from now, there's going to be a little bit longer conversation on the other end of this uh, mission request. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, if they don't let us go, then let us go. Okay. Um, another question from a listener. How do I teach my children knowing all the messiness in Mormonism in a way that's both fair and honest? I And, and she goes on to say, I'm already a little jaded, but I don't want to spill that over to my children in their early years. Yeah. So I remember us doing a family home evening lesson where we took some metal coat hangers. We cut them into L shapes and we watched a video on YouTube about how to do it. And it was to make them into like divining rods and like all of your cowdries? Yeah, same kind of idea. And so we yeah. all the, the, the six of us walked around the house with our clothes hangers. And when we got close to, um, water faucets or we got close to an electrical line, then these coat hangers would begin to like cross each other. And it was really cool. All the kids saw it. And the lesson revolved around the fact that Joseph Smith was a treasure digger, that he used these artifacts that today we would relate to being like water witching, that Oliver Cowdery did that, for instance, and make it not so weird and not so strange. And the lesson got done, and all of my kids since then, like like every single one of them, you could walk up and say, is it weird that Joseph Smith used a seer stone and a hat? And every one of my four kids would be like, no, dad, that's not weird. We already, already talked about like this kind of thing. So I think you, you relate it in ways 
that your kids can grasp what's going on, can grasp that you're sharing an open conversation that they can ask questions about. And at the end of the day, like there's this information sprinkled in, in a way that you're not like overwhelming them, but they're learning and they're seeing that this is open and they're realizing when they go to church that they know parts of the story that other people don't. And I think there's value to them kind of understanding that there's more to the story than what we're saying here. But, but again, I don't know how well it's working because my kids, for a lot of various reasons, are are kind of struggling right now with the church. I understand. I get it. A lot of people struggle with transparency in the church, especially when it comes to finances. What do you? How do you feel about that? Uh, it's a church. I think it should be completely transparent. I try to picture. I try to picture Jesus if he's on the earth and he's running an institution. Like, would that institution? Be open, like, and I, and again, I don't know the right answer. I'm only saying like what I think and feel, like I could be wrong, but I'd like to think that the institution could be more transparent. And, and it seems like it used to be, right? I mean, Quinn's told us over dinner, uh, D. Michael Quinn's told you and me over dinner that the church used to be really transparent with its finances long ago. And, and today it's not. And I think it's paying the price by a lot of these leaks and things coming out that are exposing what their salaries are and what they, what the way these meetings work and how much money goes, you know, $17,000 for a rug in the temple. I just think that you're better off whenever there's problematic information. It's better off coming from the institution itself than coming from its critic as if the institution didn't want to tell you those things. What do you think about Mormon Leaks, Ryan McKnight's uh, website? So I've met Ryan. I like Ryan. I think he's a, I think he's a, a really good human being. And I think he has a, I think he has a, a really high ethical code that a lot of, um, believing members of the church or apologists within the church or leaders of the church would be skeptical of believing. But having talked to him personally, I think he's a, a really good human being with a high moral code. And, and I think the leaks are risky in that even if he's not asking, he's hoping for documents to come in. And some of those documents are coming from members of the church who work for the church, who are breaking their agreements with their employer to share and leak these documents. But at the same time, like, I think members of the church deserve to have access to and to know at least that the that there's more information out there and it exists and it is contradictory at least to some extent before people make these lifelong decisions to invest their very lives in this thing i think people deserve a more well-rounded picture of what they're getting into yeah it's too bad that there's even a need for something like mormon leaks Right, right. If we just talked about this stuff, then he doesn't even exist. It's like, it's like if the church had created the essays 15 years ago and, and went even a step further in having really vulnerable conversations about what we're finding in our history, then Mormon stories probably never would have even started. Yeah, that's a good point. So in 20 seconds or less, what is your best guess on what happened with the first vision? And how the Book of Mormon was translated, written. 
Just a quick one here, Bill. Oh my gosh, Chris! How like that's a that's a, a two-hour question. I okay, know. Twenty seconds. Here we go. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Start. I think Joseph had an experience with God. I think it was visionary in nature. I think Joseph felt compelled to share some truth with the world, something he saw as truth. And I think the Book of Mormon is an extension of that effort to give us something deeper. And I, I, if my best guess, well, I hope it's an ancient document. My mind says it is not an ancient document. Um, and, and there's 20 seconds, but I, I feel like the critics could pick on me. I need, I need two more hours to give you something on that. Nah, that was good. That was a good okay. one. Good, All good right. quick one. Um, what are your thoughts on the temple rituals starting after Joseph became a Freemason and the similarity between the rituals? Do you think it detracts, takes away from them? Do you think it uh, affects the sacredness of the temple ritual, knowing that it came from Freemasonry? I'll, all right, so here's a good 20-second answer. I find the temple rituals that are connected to masonry to be very uncomfortable to my spirit and my soul. At the same time, every time I've walked out of the house of the Lord, I have felt a something within me, a desire within me to be a better father and a better husband. And so regardless of the rituals, there's something about the temple that is spiritual and that encourages us to be something more and that we walk out better from it. Great. That's a great answer, man. And you kept it under 20 seconds. I appreciate okay, that. Good. No My problem. phone's down to 4%. So, you know, okay, let's keep her going. <laughs> and it's like 1030, you know, I know. Um, <clears throat> do you believe that president Monson has ever physically seen Jesus Christ? My guess is no. And again, I don't know. I'm not there, but no, I don't think president Monson nor do I think most of the prophets in this dispensation have had Jesus speak to them directly face to face. And I don't think that also, I think that also includes the, that Jesus has not shown up physically and visited the majority, if not almost all of the prophets in this dispensation. Does that bother you? Um, yeah, obviously, my hesitation says there's something there that bothers me. I don't know that it's a hill that I care enough to die on, but yeah, I mean, I think we were we were taught that these men were like Moses, Noah, and Abraham, and I think we were taught to make the assumption to 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 reach out and, and assume that these men had conversations directly with Jesus, not that they talked to him, which they all do, but that he talked back in. And I don't think that's happened. And yeah, it makes me uncomfortable, but I don't, I don't want that to be a hill I'm going to die on. Do you think that in order to achieve the highest level in the celestial kingdom that you, you need to be a Mormon? No. Uh, is Abraham Lincoln in the celestial kingdom? <clears throat> is Martin Luther King in the celestial kingdom? And I know that, and again, I'm not naive to the, the flaws of those, those men. Mm-hmm. Is is Mother Teresa in the celestial kingdom? Whether whether somebody goes into a, a a temple and baptizes another mortal being on behalf of that dead person? No, I, I I don't think so. I think there is power in the rituals. I think that in what is the what's the quote we have in our church? Uh, the the power of God is manifest. Something about the, oh, in the ordinances is the power of godliness manifested. Yeah. 
Like I believe that. But do I believe that that ritual, that that person on the other side has to like come face to face with Joseph Smith and say, I will accept you, Joseph, as a prophet and I will accept the Book of Mormon as scripture and I will allow Betty Lou to baptize me in the St. George Temple on my behalf. Like I don't, I don't know about all that. I just know Mother Teresa's there. She's there already, right? If anybody's standing next to God right now, it's Jesus on one hand and Mother Teresa on the other, whether she's been baptized in a temple or not. Like, I'm okay with that. Gotcha. Uh, you mention, uh, occasionally that the strengthening, the, uh, the strengthening members committee, committee is probably following you, listening to you, uh, online. Um, what do you think? How do you think the brethren would react if, uh, to, to the majority of your podcast? Do you think that they think you are helping people maintain their faith and stay in the church? Or do they, or would you think that the brethren are, would be, um, mostly disappointed in what you do with your podcast? Let me start by asking you a question. How many of the top 15 do you think plug in a pair of headphones or earbuds? And listen to my episodes. Uh, none. Okay. So let's start with that. Okay. None of the 15 are listening to Mormon discussion. They rely on the strengthening church members committee, which, which I have on pretty good authority are listening and watching what I'm doing. And those individuals get to chop up and splice and cut out and pick pieces and parts and then you know, write those things down and then give those to somebody else and let that person make a judgment based on that limited view of what I'm saying and doing. I think if the leaders of the church could listen to me from the very beginning and listen to all the work that I've done, I think they would be uncomfortable, but I think they would see the value in it. And I think they would see that it's helping people to stay and that these are the kinds of vulnerable conversations that help people to stay in the church once they realize the dominant narrative is not true. I absolutely agree, Bill. I think that people like Richard Bushman make them uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. And the things he writes, and even Terrell Givens to some degree, and Patrick Mason and, and others. But because they're working with the limited portion of what somebody else passes along to them, then I have to believe, and, I, and again, I mean... I kind of have a little bit of an inside glimpse that they are really uncomfortable with the little pieces and parts that come to them. Do you ever worry about being disfellowshipped or exed for sharing your feelings? Yeah, I worry all the time. I mean, I, you and I have had this conversation. Like I'm, I'm not ready to be done being a Mormon. Like this is my tribe. I want to be here. Do these people welcome me into the middle of the circle? No, but, but I, I, man, Mormonism is in my bones. I don't want to go anywhere. And so, my plan, my hope, my, my, what I say in this very moment is like, I want to die my dying breath as a Latter day Saint. But at the end of the day, like, I don't have control over that. And at any moment, somebody else can come to me and can say, like, you're not in our tribe anymore. And that scares the, de- you know, scares me to death. And, but I don't have control over that. Like, I can't be, I can't be inauthentic. I can't, I can't pretend. I can't say, what I don't feel. And so like, let, let the chips fall where they may, but I want to stay as long as they'll let me stay. As long as they'll let me be Mormon, I'm Mormon. So 
if you were to take, I don't know, say the last year's worth of correspondence from your listeners, how would you how, take a, take the last year, how many positive emails uh, and phone calls have you received compared to how many you've received where somebody has said, you know what, I've left the church because I've Bill Rill and Mormon discussion podcast. So again, the, I don't know if the critic of me or the podcast will believe what I'm saying, but like there will be a comment here or there on Facebook when somebody doesn't know my work and they're not listening and I post something and they're, you know, a listener of mine will share it and then they're the aunt of that listener and they jump in and they're a little bothered by what's being said because it runs counter to what they're hearing. But for the people who follow what I do, for the people who follow my Facebook post, for the people who listen to the podcast, and, and if I speak exclusively of all the emails I've gotten from anyone in the past year, every single one of them have been positive with the exception of one man who is not a listener to the podcast who wrote me and blamed me for his two kids leaving because they had listened to my most recent episode at the time. And it didn't matter how much I explained to him that these, your kids, your kids have run into issues long before my episode that was released three days ago. Like these kids were thinking and struggling and wondering and asking questions long before they found Bill Real. Besides that one dad, every other single email is people thanking me for what I'm doing and that what I'm doing is providing them an easier space to stay connected to Mormonism and for most of them for staying in the church. If you were to take a guess, how many emails, phone calls have you received in the last year that were, I mean, how many have you received? How many do you get on a regular basis? Uh, emails are almost daily, multiple emails a week, multiple Facebook messages a week, um, probably on average one phone call every other week, every three weeks maybe, um, where somebody, you know, reaches out and wants me to talk by phone and kind of respond to some of the questions they have. Uh, if I had to so put a number, six, like I don't, I don't know. Six a week, seven a week emails and yeah, maybe five or six emails a week. Okay. Um, probably five or six Facebook messages a week, maybe more in Facebook messages, and then maybe a phone call once every two or three weeks. But you're talking over the course of a year, we're talking hundreds, hundreds of correspondences. You spend and time every, one of these every day responding? Yeah. I mean, I go into work early every day. I mean, my 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 job doesn't start until 10 a.m., and I mean, Chris, you get the notifications when I'm opening the place up. It's between 7:30 and 8:30 most mornings. I just figure you're fighting with Amanda. Nobody shows up to work three hours early. Yeah, but I go in. It's my quiet time, and I get to pull up the emails and the messages and and respond. Sometimes I'm recording an episode early, but but a lot of times it's responding. Uh, in fact, uh, if you look at your phone and see when when I uh, when I uh, signed out of work tonight, uh, you'll notice it was about a half an hour after close. That's because I was sitting at the desk and typing away an email message uh, response. So it, it just takes a lot of time. I mean, I get I get people who criticize me, like I'm in this to make money, and you've come to me, and and, and your brothers come to me and said, like Bill, you should charge more, like a dollar fifty a month. And and what do I tell you? Why do I why do I tell you that that I don't do that? 
Uh, you say you aren't in it for the money. You don't ever want somebody to not be able to afford it. Right. I, I don't want the content to be narrowed down to a small group of people. I want everyone to get it while at the same time bringing in at least enough cash to keep this thing going. And when, and when the funds run low, I reach out to the listeners and I say, look, there's a need. Can you guys help fill it? And at that point over the next two weeks after that, you know, donations come in and then I generally leave it alone for a while. How much, how much does your podcast bring in a year? Um, last year we brought in 11,000. Most of that's still in the bank account, but, but I would love to like account to the listeners, like how all this gets spent if I can. Uh, we've done uh, workshops that we've helped, uh, take care of some of the cost on, uh, transportation to do presentations that I do throughout the year where I'm invited to come to somebody's home or, uh, to, to kind of meet with a, a group of saints in that area and kind of, answer questions they've got or kind of walk them back from their own their own frustration in their in their faith crisis or faith transition uh hotels whenever we've had to stay somewhere uh for example one thing would be the cost of sunstone so the travel up to salt lake city hotels for two or three nights uh, to be there at sunstone and to present uh at times listeners come to visit me i've taken them out to dinner we've got travel expenses like airfare we went to phoenix last year and and did a weekend with Thomas McConkey, uh, and so the podcast took care of the cost for that. We uh, we the, the podcast bought a computer last year so that we'd have two uh, computers in our home. One is the main one that our family uses. The other one is in a separate room where I record uh, the podcast interviews uh, from there so that way my family can still be out in the living room and, and watching television or enjoying a movie or playing a game or something if I'm in the middle of recording an episode and, and I'm not, I'm far enough away from their activity that my sound stuff isn't generally picking up what they're saying or doing and they're able to kind of make some noise and not have to be so quiet because I'm in the next room over uh, recording. So, I mean, we, we have costs associated. We've got web, uh, we've got the web page. Um, we've got the Amazon storage where we store a lot of the MP3 files. We also have a backup on Dropbox where we store the MP3 files. It's a business account, the Amazon account. So you have all these costs that go with it, but we've always tried from the very beginning, Chris, to, you know, it's a 501c3, people's donations are tax deductible, and we've always tried to run the podcast uh, so that I'm not taking any personal funds from it, and, and the podcast uh, has a certain amount of cost associated with it, but we've always tried to be responsible in the way that we've done that. How would you define an apologist? And would you consider yourself an apologist? Um, I think in the the basic nature of the word, yeah, Bill Rill's an apologist. But I, I kind of define the word differently. I use the word apologist to label and, and you know slap me on the wrist if you want to. I use it to label people who will defend their belief or their cause – at any expense. And so when somebody, when a, when a criticism is brought forth and that criticism is valid and is reasonable and is maybe a better conclusion based on the data, if you refuse to acknowledge its validity, refuse to acknowledge that it's reasonable, refuse to acknowledge that it's the rational, logical conclusion to come to, and you're just going to Build walls around your belief, no matter how implausible the apologetic 
argument you're going to make is, then for me, that's an apologist. If you're willing to, to answer questions, hard questions, you're willing to be vulnerable and say, we don't have good answers for that. You're willing to step out and say, like, like the critic has a better conclusion here. I'm going to exercise faith anyway. And, but the, but the critic has the better argument. Then, then I generally don't use apologists with those people, that term. If someone uh, emails you or calls you and says, point me to something I can read, I'm at the very beginning of my faith transition, what is it you give them? Where do you, do you have a kind of a go-to set of uh, websites or books that you direct people to? Yeah, I can tell you it's not the CES letter and it's not Mormon Think, although I do respect those places as sources of information. The, the first thing I do is try to get those people to see their traumatic experience outside of Mormonism. So the first thing I point them to is like John Pauline's uh, Stages of Faith, um, uh, Janet Hagberg's uh, book on the continuous journey, uh, Kathy Escobar's book Faith Shift, uh, Margaret Placentra Johnston's book um, Faith Beyond Belief. I, I, I would much rather the person first see that faith development is normal, faith deconstruction and reconstruction is normal, and having to reconcile a loss of belief in your belief system's narrative, that that's normal. And then once they see that, it's a much easier chance to kind of rebuild it and reconstruct it and put it back together within Mormonism. And so once they've looked into those things, they understand stages of faith, faith development, then we'll start to go back towards Mormonism. Once we get back into Mormonism, I think Terrell Givens and Fiona Givens, um, Crucible of Doubt is a good one. I think reading Richard Bushman, not that he's in a, like, like giving answers to the problems, but the fact that he's still in the church and he's a faithful Latter-day Saint and he's writing vulnerably about all these issues. I think Rough Stone Rolling is a good one. Um, and I maybe just a plug for what I just did. I just put out a a project called Mormon Primer, which can be found on the podcast mormondiscussionpodcast.org. And it's a 65-page document. It tries to tackle the same issues that the CES letter does, but it does so trying to be objective and trying to be as unbiased as possible in giving the reader a ton of sources and links and footnotes that if on any one issue they want to dive deeper, they can go do that. And, th- and I share four views in that document, and three of those four are faithful in the church views. Well, what are the four views? Orthodox, progressive? Critical other- and apologetic. Okay. So I lead off with the orthodox view, kind of what the average member kind of thinks on these issues, show what the critic has to say, show how the apologist puts that back together, and then where the progressive kind of comes down validating some of the critics' arguments but reconciling it with with their love of Mormonism. So, Bill, there are probably 25 more questions. I'll be quick. All right. I'll try to do I'll try to do this is a real lightning round this time. Okay. You want to do you want to do a real lightning round this time? Yeah, a real lightning round this time. Okay. Um, what did you think about the election? Uh, Chris, do you care anymore about politics? Uh, I don't give a crap about politics anymore, man. <laughs> yeah, Do you? me either. No, okay. me either. Next question. <laughs> right. I used to love I used to love Limbaugh and, and Glenn Beck. No more. Uh, Let's just move on. I don't even watch I, it. I used to skip classes when I was in college to listen to Rush Limbaugh and these guys, and now it just has no 
holds nothing for me anymore. I don't mean to be rude, but he could choke on a hot dog. I don't care. Let's just move on. <laughs> Homosexuals have always existed. Gay marriage has never existed until recently. Do you see any negative effects on children who have two fathers or two mothers? Uh, if a kid is in a loving home, then, man, more power to him because there's not enough kids that have it. So I, uh, any loving home is good enough for me. Do you believe the priesthood was restored by Peter, uh, James, and John? Or do you think Oliver Cowdery and Joseph kind of conspired to just create the event? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Bushman says it's a possible later fabrication, and I'm with Bushman. I think it's a possible later fabrication, but I don't know. And so I'm just happy. I'm happy with the understanding that there might be some kind of power and authority that God has and that he allows his children to utilize it. And for me, that's priesthood. Did the three witnesses and the eight witnesses make it up, or do you think they, do you take them at their word that they saw what they said they saw? I don't think the experience is as concrete as the church puts it, but I think those eight witnesses had some kind of spiritual interaction that, that they, from going forward, they had faith in the Book of Mormon as, as scripture. Uh, in your podcast and uh, throughout your Facebook posts, you've referred to the Fowler stages of faith many times. It seems like something that you uh, really embrace and really identify with. As you have moved through these these different stages, um, do you find yourself still a little bit in stage three and probably a little in stage four? Uh, if you'd have asked me that two years ago, I would have said no. In terms of stage three, I think I always recognize there's this tension from stage four still with me. I think getting to know people like Thomas McConkie have helped me to understand you never completely leave a stage. You always take pieces of parts of that stage with you. And so there are still pieces and parts of me that are black and white, us versus them. Um, you're the forester against us. So, no, I'm, you never leave those stages completely behind. You, you always carry pieces and parts of those with you. As you and I have studied uh, church history, there are many, many, many examples of holy people, prophets lying for the Lord. Do you, how do you justify that? Do you think it's okay to lie for the Lord? If you ask me, is lying always wrong? I would say no. There are times that lying is the, is the, is the right thing to do. What I don't like is when we hold information back from people and they hurt each other because they didn't know the full story. And so I think some of the times in the church that the leaders have been dishonest or withheld things or not been transparent or not willing to take an extra step and, and acknowledge that there's a problem in certain spaces here, that's not healthy. And I, and I want to just like, like just own that. Like it's not healthy and, and we can do better. Yeah. It seems like if you're lying to protect yourself, that's probably more problematic. If you're lying to protect someone else, then uh, there's probably much more space. And if you're lying to protect an institution at the expense of another human being, like I'm not okay with that. Mm. Yeah. And neither, I don't think Jesus would be either. How do you reconcile the fact that so many people feel they've received spiritual confirmations, um, in their, you know, in their membership in the church. 
I know you've told stories and shared experiences when you were a bishop and, and other times where you've had very strong spiritual promptings and spiritual experiences. Um, but as you know, other people in other churches have these same feelings. How do you reconcile the two? If there's a God, and I deeply hope and have faith that there is, if there's a God, I think he works with us through our own language, through our own culture, through our own belief systems to kind of like reach out and touch us, to, to encourage us to reach out and to touch him. And, and so in the past, I would have seen my Mormon experiences as validation of my Mormonism. And I still believe very deeply in the spiritual experiences I've had. And they're just as real to me today as they were 10 years ago. But I no longer see them as testifying of the truth of Mormonism, but rather testifying of the truth of God and his love for me and his willingness to work through my Mormonism to interact with me and to encourage me to have a relationship with him. Would you say the Mormons have a monopoly on the Holy Ghost, or is the Holy Ghost, does everyone have access to the Holy Ghost? This is the one of the most problematic things for me, because we like to say, like, we have the gift of the Holy Ghost, and they have something less than that, and yes, they can feel the Spirit, but we have the constant companionship, and yes, they have the light of Christ, which is not really the Holy Ghost, but they still feel some of these experiences. Like, I'm just not okay with that. Human beings who are dedicated to God and who are seeking spiritual experiences, have them. And my guess is if we could do some kind of study, the magnitude, the expansiveness of those experiences are similar across multiple religions. And so I don't think Mormonism has a monopoly on the degree, the extensiveness, the quality, the significance of spiritual experiences. And and so while I, I like to say like there's something there, and, and the way I've reconciled it is that because Mormons had hands laid on their head and they were asked to receive the Holy Ghost, that maybe the gift of the Holy Ghost is the fact that God, through our faith and through our rituals, has drawn our attention to the fact that we have access to it rather than it being there and us not even knowing it's there. That that knowing it's there is a gift and that Mormons have been called to recognize that the Holy Spirit is there, and that that calling to recognize it is the gift. So you validate other people's spiritual experiences. You've seen videos on YouTube where people are bearing their testimonies in other churches, feeling just as strongly as any Latter Day Saint does on a on a fast and testimony meeting. So you validate those experiences as well. You and I know a a prominent leader within one of the fundamentalist groups. And, and you and I have talked to this gentleman on several occasions and you and I both would not, we would not believe his set of beliefs. Like we would disagree with him on his beliefs. And yet I think you and I would both validate that his spirituality, his testimony, his spiritual experiences and, and the way in which he feels God has reached down and interacted with him are just as significant as any Latter day Saint in our church. Absolutely. In fact, I would call him a holy man. Very good person. Right. Um, the community of Christ is a lot of times progressive Mormons look to the community of Christ and their model and how they've changed as uh, 
very as what we would like to see happen in Mormonism. Um, the problem is, as they've changed, they've also contracted and gotten smaller. Do you do you think that Mormonism could can stay the vibrant, growing, good, great, uh, you know, visionary religion it is, and embrace some of these views that you have? I admire deeply, deeply the community of Christ. Um, but for me, and I'm only speaking for myself, there's not enough tension there. There's not enough, there's not enough of whatever that thing is that just pushes back against us. It, for me, for me to feel like the vibrancy of my own growth and inside myself. So I, I want Mormonism to be a safer place. And I think the community of Christ is a good example of what some of those things that make it safer look like. On the other hand, I think Mormonism has to make you uncomfortable and it has to claim something that makes it unique. Otherwise, it doesn't have the vibrancy or growth within itself and it becomes, it becomes just a shell of itself if it doesn't provide attention. And it doesn't make an exclusive claim. If you were given the ultimatum by your priesthood leaders to end your podcast or to, um, you know, essentially go quiet on social media or be excommunicated, what would you do? Uh, what I would do is ask for two weeks to think about it. And then I would give you a call and sit down with you and, <laughs> and, and have a conversation where maybe you walk me back from whatever edge that is. And you say, let's figure out what this looks like. Um, I don't know. Like, like, I don't know. I don't know that the podcast continues if I'm just out of the church. Like, what does that look like? And, and yet at the same time, I would hope that no church leader would use the very thing that Elder Uchtdorf preached against, which is to use fear or threats to get somebody to do something within the church. And so I would hope no leader would come to me and, and ask me to make that kind of a choice. And I hope that, that folks out there would see the value in the people that stay because of voices like this. But if that did happen, like I don't know what I would do. And, and I pray that nobody ever asked me to make that decision. And, and I told you, Chris, like, I'm not going to be a podcaster at 55 years old. I'm not going to be a podcaster at 70 years old. Like, that's, that's silly. So, and again, I'm not making fun of any 70 year old podcaster. I'm saying for me, like, to still be hashing all this out 20 years from now is, I just don't see that in, 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 for me. And so, whatever, like, if Mormonism. So what keeps you going? Because there's still conversations to be had. There's still things to talk about. I was telling you today, like, like I still need to talk about the Deutero-Isaiah issue. Um, I, I think there's still things to talk about with some of the miracle stories of the Mormonism that you and I are hopefully going to do an episode on here in a few weeks. Um, I, I think there's still important issues to give people a framing for. But when there's nothing left to talk about, there's nothing left to talk about and you walk away. And you move on to some other aspect of your life. But for right now, this is still something I feel is important. And when it isn't, it isn't. Are there any what you would consider dogmas that you still hold on to? I know dogma is kind of a dirty word in progressive Mormonism, but are there any 
I don't know, dogmatic claims or, or dogmas that you would still say you embrace? They're fluffy ones. Um, I would say, again, I say the Book of Mormon scripture and it's changed my life. I say that the Christ of faith, whatever that means, that the Jesus of faith has changed my life. I've been impacted by his grace and his mercy. Um, I, I find that I've had spiritual experiences and I cannot deny those. I've often sat up and said, maybe there's no God. Maybe the light just goes out. And then I recall those spiritual experiences and I say, there's something. I don't know what it is. There's something. If there's not a, a bearded, two-arm, two-leg guy in the clouds, then maybe there's a connected consciousness of some sort. But there's something. Um, going to church is good for me. I have experienced personal growth, so I see the value in attending church every week. Uh, I love being with the saints. I love being around members of the church. Um, I'm okay that they're uncomfortable by me and I'm uncomfortable by them. That's good for both of us. I, I don't know anything else beyond that. Like, life is short. I don't know what lies on the other side. So I'm going to have a lot of fun on this side and I'm going to treat people right. I'm going to love people, especially those who are marginalized by their society. Do you have any religious beliefs that you would admit are unjustified beliefs, but that you choose to believe anyway because they make you feel good? There, there are parts of my brain that could argue the, tr- the, the historical nature of the Book of Mormon. I could argue a historical Jesus and from the beginning of Matthew to the end of John, uh, recognizing Mark as a second book, not necessarily talking about the order <laughs> they were written. Right. Um, like, ah, man, I could, I could argue any claim in Mormonism and take the orthodox or apologetic perspective and argue that and argue it with a sense of real belief in my soul. But but am I going to die on any of those hills? No. Is there something I believe that I, I think is not reasonable? Um, I believe Mormonism is going to change for the better, and it's going to change soon. Okay. I hope so, too. Uh, final question, Bill. How have your ward members and priesthood leaders responded to your podcast and your uh, nuanced views? I, I have some. Yeah. Let, let me go on one more. Please I, please. I imagine most of the people listening to your podcast on a regular basis would love to be in your ward, would love to be in gospel doctrine, uh, you know, with you in, in a back and forth discussion. So. How do your ward members and, and, and priesthood leaders um, deal with your nuanced views? So first, I wish I was in their ward too. I think part of the nature of the narrow path that Jesus spoke of is the real truth behind straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that find it. I think the reality is there's very, very few of us in any given ward. There's very few people living into later stages of development in any given ward or any group in society. My, my bishop is awesome. I, I have one of the best bishops in the entire church at the same time. Like I just want to like honor and validate like the reality that he, he misunderstands me by the very nature of, of where I am and, and what I've experienced. 
I, I have an awesome stake president, one of, one of the greatest stake presidents in the entire church. And yet I want to honor and validate that on some level, he doesn't understand me. And I think he would say as much. Um, in my ward, there are people who confide in me quietly uh, when they come over to my home or ask me to come over to theirs, that they're hurting and struggling through some of this as well. I have people in my ward who like when I raise my hand and speak up, they like the things I'm saying because it feels right as opposed to the dominant narrative that's being shared in the lesson that Sunday. I I have people who are very, really uncomfortable with what I say. I have people who, who, whenever I speak, no matter what I say, they're ready to pounce. They're ready to raise their hand and raise an objection regardless of the point that I make. I have other people who are uncomfortable and just wish I didn't say anything, but, but they sit quietly and, and they don't vocally object, but they are, they are in the back of their mind wishing I would just not say a word. I have other people who walk up at the end of class when I say something or if I'm teaching a lesson and, and they say, thank you. Like those are my thoughts. Your thoughts are my thoughts. I just can't say that. And so I have people who express, uh, that I had somebody just this past week come up to me and say, Bill, I love it when you stand up for people on the fringe of our religion. Like you help the rest of the class reconsider whether, whether the position we hold as a group, as an institution, as a culture, whether that position is hurting somebody and whether we can do better. Um, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's, it's a hodgepodge of, of different people with different perspectives. And at the end of the day, like, I think part of what makes Mormonism true in living is that we're just thrown into a room with a bunch of people just because we live nearby, not because we agree with them, not because we see the world the same way. And being in that mix of differences, I think, is is the very beauty of Mormonism. At least it's the beauty that I look to and say, this is the reason I opened my eyes, it's the reason I've grown, is because... I'm in a room full of people who think and view and say things differently. Wow, man. You sure say it well. I appreciate you taking the time tonight. I know you're, okay. I know you're busy and I know you like to get up early and go to work. So thanks for staying up late with me. No problem. Um, uh, let me just say, I appreciate you taking the time, Chris, to like ask some of these things and I hope the listener got something out of this. Um, I want to say like just, just at the end here, I'm happy to be open. I'm happy to be vulnerable. I'm happy to answer any question. And I, I don't always get a chance to like answer every email to the fullest extent. But if, if you have an additional question, like write the podcast, send it to realmormon at gmail.com and, and let's, let's try to answer any question you throw out there. And, and I, I don't want to ever be seen as ducking or hiding or dismissing or, or, distancing myself from any question. I hope that as the listener, that, that honesty, that openness, that you can, you can see that kind of come through. Uh, as we end every episode, uh, I hope this, this time spent was beneficial to you. I really do hope that for every member of the church who's having a hard time in, in a faith deconstruction, faith reconstruction, faith crisis, faith transition, faith shift, whatever you want to call it, I hope that you've got the resources that you need 
that allow you just to slow down and just take your time with this. And I hope you come out the other side with honestly as much peace and and well centered as I feel like I've I've been able to manage that. And and more importantly, I hope that those who love you, those who care for you, those who have concern for you, that they'll have empathy, that they'll have understanding, that they'll have patience and charity and be willing to meet you where you are. May the Lord warm your shoulders. Chris, thank you again. To all of you, God bless you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.